see completely eye to eye, but we're family. And uh, Jesus is our leader, God is our father, and the Holy Spirit is our guide. And uh, with that, we can not only enjoy this season of celebration, but uh, we can look forward with anticipation to some great things in the new year. Uh, if you're a, a guest here this morning, as I've already alluded to, I am, I am not the lead pastor. We don't have a pastor yet. And uh, hopefully we will move forward with some good news on that shortly. Um, I am an elder here at this church, and, and an elder is, by God's description, is a leader in the church uh, and described as a shepherd. And my goal this morning is simply to point you towards the great shepherd, towards Jesus. I hope you will be encouraged and strengthened, and I hope your desire to follow Christ and to be like him will be strengthened as well. So let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your great goodness. Thank you for coming in the flesh, being Emmanuel. Father, we want to honor you this morning in all that we do. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful that you initiated with us. You reached down for us. Individually, Lord, you called us up. You pulled us out of the muck and the mire. Father, help me to speak clearly this morning, and I pray that hearts would be open to hear from you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story before I, before I begin and do a little review. I am a school teacher, so of course I have to give you a review. Um, God, in his sense of humor, I took my son Jeb out to breakfast this morning. We came early and had worship practice and took him to his favorite place, Subway, for a breakfast sandwich. And uh, as I walked up, there weren't any other customers, and the only lady in the store serving was at the door putting a sign up, and as I walked in, she said, good morning, and how are you doing today? And not kidding, the thought popped into my head, well, I'm getting ready to go preach at my church, but of course I said, oh, I'm doing great. So I walked in ahead of her and got to the counter, and she walked and came around the counter behind me, and not joking, I thought, something's wrong with this lady, but she said, oh, well, how are you today? And the thought came into my head again, I don't know, I'm good, it's been a good morning. So I order my breakfast, and she puts it in the toaster, closes the toaster, turns around to me and says, well, how are you today? <laughs> and I thought, all right, I know I'm slow, Lord, and I know I'm supposed to go preach, but maybe this is the important interaction today. So finally, after the third time, I stopped, and I just told her, I said, you know, I'm I'm going to my church. I get to preach at my church today, and I get to talk about Jesus. And uh, she didn't ask me anymore. That was it. Um, but I at least got to say the name of Jesus, and I got to, with enough chances, not be afraid to speak outside of this. And uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to talk about our Lord sometimes. I wish it was easier for me um, but I'm going to give it my best here in front of you this morning as well. So, two weeks ago, if you were here, we had a guy named Matt Whitehead here. And uh, gave an amazing sermon out of the book of Job. And, and it was challenging, challenged me personally to, to reflect on if God took away 
all of his good gifts in my life. But I still worship him because he is worthy of our worship no matter what we have. Then I was doubly challenged as I reflected on that as a church and and, uh, pondered the question, would you and I still be here this morning if God took away the comfort, took away the heat and the lights and the technology and the music? Would we still come and worship God if all we did was sit on the floor and open a book for a couple hours? Those are challenging things. And then last week, uh, Rob Robbins gave, I think, the first sermon I've ever heard, the first Christmas sermon out of the book of John. And uh, he made some great connections between sort of the great cosmic connections that exist between creation and the birth of our Savior. And he got back to the heart of it all, too, that our God is worthy to be worshipped and that he's capable of changing us weak, frail human beings by the power of his spirit, by the power of his word, by the power of his breath. And today I want to help you understand, help you see a little better, uh, hopefully take with you out of this room as well, two simple ideas. I'm going to tell them to you up front, and if you have to leave early, you're good to go. Um, Number one, we're, we're in this season celebrating Christ's birth. And I'm going to take a few moments this morning to remind you that he's coming back. And yes, we need to celebrate his birth, but we need to not forget that Jesus is coming back at any moment, perhaps right now, and save me from having to preach anymore. (laughs) Maybe five minutes from now, saving you from having to listen to me anymore. But uh, the reality is, And there's no denying it, Jesus is coming back. His return is imminent. And the big question for you and me to consider is, are we ready? Are you ready? Or are we going to be surprised? And not necessarily in a good way. Secondly, you'll notice that uh, we're saving communion for the end today. And uh, that's on purpose Because at the end of my sermon, I want to take a few minutes to connect our readiness to meet Jesus face-to-face with this that we do every month. I want to remind you what this is all about and uh, talk to you about why we do it. So let's jump in. Uh, First of all, we need to understand that uh, what it is that we need to be ready for. I think if you've read your Bible at all, you will know that that there is a fair amount of prophecy. God talks a lot about what is coming. In fact, there are more prophecies in the Bible about Jesus' second coming than there were about his birth, his first coming. And, uh, and Jesus himself, he actually talked more about this second coming than he did about his own death. And of course, uh, we know that Christ's first coming, his life, and ultimately his death, his crucifixion, uh, his burial, and his resurrection, that that broke the power of sin and death. But the final culmination, the final death blow to Satan, and our, as believers, our return to life as God originally intended it, that's what's coming. And to keep our hope alive, God told us what to expect. And that's what I want to look at this morning, is some verses that talk to us about that. So first up, in the book of Acts, it says, 
Men of Galilee, they said, this was an angel speaking after Jesus went back. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. But someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. We know that after Jesus' ministry here on earth, he went up into the sky. And some of the disciples were there to watch that happen. And he went back to the spiritual realm, heaven. And, an, and the angel clearly tells them he's coming back again in the sky the same way. Or how about this verse? Verse out of John 14. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This is one of my favorite passages for speculation. Uh, Normally that's not a good thing when we're reading the Bible, but uh, I love to speculate because I look around the world and my family loves nature videos. We watch far too many of them, but uh, we're not wealthy enough to travel all over the world, so we sit on our couch and we watch things around the world. And it's amazing, the creativity in in nature and uh, the, the beauty of it all is fantastic. And God made all of that, not just the things on here, but the entire universe in six days. So I love speculating about if Jesus can do that, all this in six days, imagine what he can do after at least 2,000 or more years of preparing, of getting ready for us. All right? Then I want you to listen to Jesus' own words from the book of Mark. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to, but uh, I'm going to go to Mark chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 26. In my Bible, they're in red, Jesus speaking here. Mark chapter 13. Then everyone will see the Son of God coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the earth, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all of these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. All these things there is in the previous verses, if you want to go back and read earlier in, in the book of Mark. Verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Just a quick side note there. Some people get tripped up on on Jesus talking about this generation. But clearly in this passage, he's talking about future events. And I think it's it's obvious, if you stop and think about it, that he's, he's not talking about the disciples, the people that he was talking to. That generation has passed. We're 2,000 years down the road from there. But Jesus is talking about the generation that sees the signs that he's described, that that generation will see the end. It will come quickly at that point. Back to verse 32. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. 
And since you don't know when the time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch. Weren't the shepherds told something about keeping watch? They were keeping watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. Again, hear me clearly on this this morning. I don't want to diminish the joy of this season and of celebrating Jesus' first coming. I love my own kids' anticipation of Christmas morning. Uh, I love remembering that feeling for myself. But friends, let's not forget that Jesus commands us here to be watching and looking and ready for his second coming. That's what it is. Why? The the real simple answer is that uh, God tells us to be ready. And ultimately, Jesus' second coming is the end. There's no second chances after that. The why to be ready is our hearts need to be right. We need to understand who God is before that event, and we'll get into that in a few moments. Uh, Here's a couple other verses that that describe sort of our part of that as well, and and I want to give you fair warning that they're... They're a little bit challenging, um, not, not because of anything I'm going to say about them, but because this is God, our leader, talking. All right? The first verse comes out of the book of Thessalonians, and it says this, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. In typical fashion, God uh, always, always whoops my behind when I'm preparing for any kind of a talk. And uh, I came down this week and read the few beginnings of, of my sermon to my kids at home. Uh, and I got to that verse right as I was about ready to go get my second helping of food. And uh, and it says there, even my body needs to be kept blameless. And I thought, all right, Lord, i got to practice this right here, right now, of being disciplined with my body. And you might think, ah, it's not really that challenging, is it? But it says we have to let God keep us holy in every way. Not just the ways we like. Not just the easy ways. In every way. And every single part of us is to be blameless. In fact, if we're not careful, that could be a little bit depressing or maybe downright impossible, except for the fact that it's God who's doing it in us, as long as we are surrendered to him and allow him to work. Here's one more verse. Titus 2. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope 
to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. The challenge for us today is to consider how we're doing with that. Are we actively turning away from godless living? Not perfect, we understand that. But are we actively putting effort How are we doing in the wisdom department, the righteousness department? How is our devotion to God? And in light of that wonderful day that's coming soon, I hope that you will listen to these instructions from the Lord. I want to take a moment and just jump sideways and uh, remind you this, this morning is supposed to be encouraging. This isn't scare tactics in any way, but I think I'm I'm safe, however, in saying both from God's word clearly and, and from current signs that we really, really do need to be living as if Christ could come back at any moment. So I want to look at a, at a, few, a, a few prophetic signs or requirements for Jesus' second coming. And don't forget, Christmas, the thing that we're celebrating here is described in great detail. God gives us even greater detail about his second coming. One, from the book of Matthew, says that the human race has to have the ability to destroy itself, to exterminate itself. Uh, I did a little finger walking on the internet, and the current estimate is that there's about 900 million guns in the world today. Pistols, rifles, ones that you can hold in your hand, that an individual human can hold. And, And the estimate is that not in total, but every year, 14 billion rounds of ammunition are manufactured. So right there, every year, we're making enough bullets to have at least two each. All right? And that's not even counting airplanes, tanks, ships, nuclear weapons, any of those things. We have that ability. Uh, my dad told me years and years ago that uh, he believed that he would live to see Christ return. And he's sitting back here. Uh, The the reality is, when he was, up until he was a teenager, that would have been impossible because the nation of Israel didn't exist until my dad was in his teens. Uh, That one's been checked off the list. How about this one? An end time, or a a union of European nations. Uh, This one's really interesting to me because... The, uh, the description of it in the Bible actually has less number of nations working together than currently exist in the European Union. Um, anybody ever heard of a little thing called Brexit? So uh, if you don't know, that's England actually voted to leave the European Union. There are less nations in it now, and, and there are a, quite a number of countries in Europe that are preparing to vote to leave the European Union as well. Things are playing out. Uh, Again, the gospel being preached, we have a lot of former missionaries here in our midst. My parents have helped, again, that one come closer to being true. They went into some places in the world that could not have been accessed without helicopters and small airplanes. And the gospel continues to this day to go out all over the world. And finally, I left mine back there. Raise your hand if you have a smartphone. 
Raise your hand. And maybe it's in your pocket or your purse. Anybody have it in your hand right now? There's a few people that are holding them right now. Uh, you could go to just about any country in the world and ask that question, and the majority of the people in the room will hold up a smartphone. We have the ability to communicate and show things across the globe. Okay. And uh, again, I want you to, to hear me clearly. God's word says that the exact time of Jesus' return is known and can only be known by God himself. That's not what we're about this morning. But we need to be like the servants that were described in Mark chapter 13. We need to be anticipating. We need to be ready for Christ's return. And the truth is we're all going to be surprised. And hopefully, hopefully we're going to be surprised in a wonderful expectant way. And I want to look at one more passage. I want to go to the book of Colossians. And uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is, is chapter 3 of Colossians. And until my studies real recently, I, I never even made a connection that it's talking about Christ, that, that, it, that it's talk, connecting it to Christ's return. I actually want to start in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says this, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. Did you catch those three things in verse 4? Number one, Christ is supposed to be the most important in our lives. In fact, he is, he is our life. Number two, it's what we're talking about this morning. Christ, who is our life, is going to be revealed to the world. There's coming a time, unlike his first coming, where only a few people saw him, where he will be revealed to the entire world. And the third part there, we get to share in his glory. I won't pretend to be smart enough to know exactly what all that means, but uh, if you want some time, those of you that are taking notes, write down Romans 8. And if you head to Romans 8 and verse 17 to 25, it gives just amazing description of the future glory that we will share with Christ. All of that, all of this, brings us to some things that we have to do. Let's keep going in Colossians 3, verse 5. So, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Verse 6, because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior, slander and obscene language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. There's a lot of putting off things in that section, and there's a strong call there to know God and to actually be like him. And that brings us 
to this table in front of me. It brings us to communion. And I got to just start by uh, saying it's a sad truth that I have multiple calendars in my workplace and at home. I have a calendar on my phone. I have alarms and reminders. I take so many notes that I should have taken out stock and sticky notes a long time ago. But even with all that, I still forget things all the time. And I have to admit that I spend most of my time in life thinking about my next meal or my next date night with my wife. So I need help. I need regular reminders to be thinking about Jesus in any way, shape, or form, let alone thinking about and watching for his return. And communion is exactly that. It's a reminder, but it is more than a reminder. It's more than just a trivial sticky note. It's a big deal. And to truly understand this, or to help us understand it a little bit better this morning, I want to, again, step back and just spend a few minutes explaining this to you. Um, I'm going to put a few pictures up on the screen, and, and if it seems a little too basic or simple for you, I need to tell you that the great orator, Ralph Paulson, once told my son Jeb that every sermon he prepares, he prepares it for 10-year-olds. So uh, here we go. All right. The first question I have for you this morning is, would you agree with me that, that we all long, we all wish the world was a good place? All right. We do. We wish that people would live in peace. We wish that people would act in love and in justice. I mean, we, we'd be excited if that just happened in our own homes, let alone the world. All right. But there's a problem. It's a big problem. Something compels us humans to constantly be wreaking havoc and destruction instead. And we call this evil. And the Bible teaches us that, that evil ruins things in at least two ways. The first way is that there, there's obviously a direct effect of our evil, like when somebody steals something from another person. They create an injustice. They owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil because that act of evil actually ruins the environment of the relationship as well. Right? It creates a lack of trust and there's emotional damage that's done. Does that sound like any relationship you've ever had? It's a little bit like vandalism. All right? And that part needs to be made right as well. And in our own human thinking, it would be really easy to stop and say, well, why doesn't God just take care of all the evil? He's powerful. He's good. He should just get rid of all the evil in the world. Sounds kind of logical, except for a small problem that if we think about it, the same evil that's out there is in here. It's in me. And if God's going to rid the world of evil, he also has to get rid of you and me. And that's what's so remarkable about this book, about the story of the Bible, is that God is so good that not only is he going to get rid of all the evil, but he's going to do it without destroying us. So how does he do that? We're introduced very early in the Bible to a practice of animal sacrifice, which uh, 
Seems a little weird to us, I know. But the Israelites at that time, it would have been a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, before we talk more about that, that people, you and I, are contributors to the evil in the world. And somehow, God has to remove that. And so in animal sacrifice, God is allowing the animal's life to be a substitute for us. The animal symbolically dies. It takes the evil from us. And the biblical word for this is the word atonement, which means that it covers over our debt. We have a debt that we owe when we sin, when we are a part of creating evil. And uh, there's a second part to this ritual, too. Because remember, evil creates this emotional vandalism or relational vandalism. In the the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest back in that day would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts around the temple. Doesn't sound very sanitary, I know. But remember, again, this is a symbol. And it's a symbol that we're not used to. Unless, of course, maybe you're Mike Hennessy and you spend a lot of time butchering animals. But... uh, The blood represents something. It represents life. And the sprinkling of that blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away the evil and the consequences of that evil. And in the Bible, it calls this process. You guys read it for me. You've been quiet for a little while. What's that word? There you go. So in that process, the temple and the land around it become clean They're a space where God and his people can now live together in peace again. And more than that, the Israelites actually experience God's love and his grace through these rituals, through these symbols. And ideally, by them being forgiven, they would be compelled to become people of peace and love and grace themselves. That's what the ideal is. But sadly, if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, that's not how it turns out, is it? Very often it is not that way. And so the prophet Isaiah, uh, he, for example, talks a lot about this. And in fact, he opens his book, the book of Isaiah, by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless. Why? Because they were also allowing great evil in their midst. They were ignoring the poor. They were ignoring the oppressed. And even the Israelite kings were distorting justice as well. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when there was a new king, a king from the line of David, who would come and he would deal with evil, but he would do it in a surprising way. The king would actually become a servant. And he wouldn't just serve, but the king would also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. His life, the life of the king, would be offered as that sacrifice. And of course, we know that Jesus fulfilled this promise. He was the king of Israel who suffered and died on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used some of Isaiah's words when he said this, that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And that word ransom refers back to the sacrifice of atonement, the covering over the taking of our debt. So in all the New Testament, all over it, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered up our debt that humans owe God for contributing to all the evil and death in the world. The New Testament authors, they also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification as well. So we hear about Jesus' blood and how his blood has the ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so that we can now live at peace with God. Uh, In Sunday school this morning with the teenagers, we were reading a book, and I heard one of the the most amazing descriptions of this. Uh, If you've read the Gospels, you know that right before Jesus, the night before he went to his death, uh, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying to the Lord, and he asked that the cup be taken from him. Um, and he sweat drops of blood. And the story that was told in the book that we read this morning was that Jesus was not afraid of his physical death. It wasn't the actual crucifixion. It wasn't the, the pain and the suffering that Jesus was afraid of. Because we can look at stories across the world of other people being martyred for their faith. Stories of people in in India being skinned alive and singing praise songs to the Lord while that's happening to them. Stories of of a person who wrote a letter to his wife describing how the next day he was going to be beheaded for his faith in Christ. The wife comes out the next day as her husband is being led up to have his head separated from his body and she's applauding him as he's reciting scripture. Jesus is more than that. He wasn't afraid of the physical part. We as humans, potentially, have the ability to even walk through some of those terrible things. So what was it that Jesus was afraid of? What was that cup? It was God pouring out his wrath for your sin and my sin, for the sin of all time on Christ himself. And it was described this morning as if I was standing here, and uh, behind me is a dam that's 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high. And as I stand here, the dam breaks, and the water is coming towards me. I'm about to have this cup poured onto me. And the moment the water arrives, the ground splits open right in front of me, and the ground swallows up all that water. And I don't have to experience that. That's what Christ did at the cross for us. He took God's wrath, all of it, the weight of every sin I've ever done for me. He took my punishment. He atoned for me. And of course, there's more to the story, right? The New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death wasn't the end wasn't final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice that actually breaks the power of sin and death, which means that Jesus is alive. He offers his life to us, to any of us that are willing to accept it. He's the perfect sacrifice to which all those other sacrifices were pointing. 
And so because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in this, the animal sacrifice. But they were given some new rituals. And there's two of them that Jesus teaches us. We, in our tradition, call them ordinances. They're commands from Christ. So Jesus taught his followers to perform this first one, baptism. And uh, baptism is a symbol. Just as Jesus died, so when you get baptized and go into the water, you have a personal connection with his death. It symbolizes Christ's death. And when you come out of the water, you symbolically come back to new life in Christ. Again, this doesn't lead to salvation. It's symbolic. And in the New Testament, it always comes after a person is a member of God's family. And the second thing that Jesus asks us to do is this ritual or this ordinance called the Lord's Supper or communion. This is a reenactment of Jesus' actual last meal with his disciples. And at that meal, Jesus used bread that he broke. And he used wine or juice, as we use today, and, uh, to per- portray his coming death and his sacrifice. And so now we, as followers of Jesus, we take this bread, we take the cup regularly to remember that Jesus sacrificed an atoning sacrifice paying the debt for our sins. And this act of love should encourage us to live a life of love and peace. But it does more than that. More than those original sacrifices, it actually connects us to Christ. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with sin in you and in me, in our own lives. It can transform us from people who transform us, pardon me, into people who lead lives of love, who lead lives of peace. And my question for you this morning is if you don't have that power because you've never fully surrendered yourself to the control of God by believing he is who he says he is, by understanding that you are a sinner incapable of saving yourself, you can't take that wrath and punishment. You can do that right now. You can take these next few quiet moments and then you can join us in celebrating Jesus' amazing, sacrificial, saving grace. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, then you have to come to this moment with a pure heart. God clearly tells us to examine our hearts, to confess any sin that we find there, and to make right any relational wrongs And then, then we can joyfully celebrate, again, his amazing, sacrificial, saving grace for us. So I have to ask that final question. Are you ready for Jesus in this moment? And are you ready to face him face to face at his second coming? If not, there's no shame in letting the crackers and the the juice pass you by and taking this time to get ready. Of course, if there's anyone here who who you're struggling with this still, I would love to talk to you after the service. There are men here and women who would love to help you understand better God's plan for the universe and for you.
But whatever you do, get ready. Brothers and sisters, we need to live ready. Jesus did come back to earth 2,000 years ago. We're celebrating that fact, that historical fact today. We celebrate that he came as a helpless baby. But he's coming back. This time he's coming back in glory. He's coming back in power. And he's coming back in judgment.